Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of the Positive Aging Community. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. Today we have a discussion with Dan Pressure, a senior editor at International Living and the author of Retiring Overseas on a Budget. He is a foremost authority on worldwide living options, as well as someone who's been living abroad for over 20 years. He's going to talk to us a little bit about different destinations, cost protocols, and healthcare considerations. I was pleased to have my good friend Tony Reinhardt co-host this discussion with me. Tony is a recent retiree who is living with her husband in Spain. So let's jump into this amazing interactive discussion. And uh, first, I want to welcome uh, a longtime friend and member of the positive aging community, Tony Reinhardt. Uh, Tony is going to be my co-host for this discussion today. And, uh, you know, I, I was so excited that I got Dan of International Living to be on this discussion. And... I, and I've been looking forward to, to it for so long. And then I I'm, have the good fortune of being Facebook friends with Tony and uh, she and her husband have recently retired or I like to say graduated and uh, um, they are living in Spain. And I was sort of like, holy cow, this is the perfect opportunity to um, tap into Tony's experience and uh, she agreed to co-host with me. And we are looking at her in her kitchen there in Spain. Um, in my Tony, kitchen. We're gonna dive into the how, what, and why of how you and your husband made the move to Spain. But, but let's, for those people in the audience that don't know you, give us a little bit of your background and then what led up to you living this uh, international lifestyle. Um, you know, it is a little weird. I was 65 years old before I even moved out of the state of Virginia. I had lived in Virginia my entire life, but my, my father was Italian. And so I'd spent a lot of time in Europe and I, I came back and he said, I'm surprised you're back from Europe. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, for a long time I had wanted to I just felt like I belonged here and I wanted to be on the Mediterranean. Well, let's so, take a, a step um, backwards. Is this in my... Can you hear me, Tony? Uh, it, yeah, I can hear you. So, so Tony is one of the leaders in the DC area in senior living before she made this radical life change. She owned Comfort Keepers in Northern Virginia, she is, uh, was involved in many regional networking groups. One of the co, I guess I could call you a co-founder of the dementia-friendly movement. Um, uh, anything else you want to add to I your I started resume? the first dementia-friendly community. Uh, I did start the first dementia-friendly community in the state of Virginia. When I, I found it. out Virginia didn't have one, I started one. So dementia-friendly Herndon was the first dementia-friendly community in Virginia that I started. So yeah, I had spent a, a lot of time in the 
dementia arena. Both my parents had dementia. My husband's mother had dementia. And then June 12th, 2020, right in the midst of COVID, my mother died. And it was very sudden. And then my husband and I looked at each other and said, this is the time. And in six weeks, sold our house, most of our possessions and moved. And Spain was our goal. So we moved to Reno, Nevada and um, hired an immigration lawyer to get us our long-term visas. And here I am. I, we got I love July it. 13th. All right. Well, I know there's more to this story and we're, <laughs> I know we're going to cover it here. But I think the best way to cover it is let's bring on Dan Fresher, who's the senior editor of International Living. Now, those of you who aren't familiar with International Living, uh, since 1979, this resource has highlighted ways for people to move and live abroad in retirement. And um, I have been receiving it hit on or off and I get their emails and it's truly just something whenever I open up one of the emails on the five best places to retire, it's like, I just kind of slip into dream mode there for a little bit on, boy, that would be great to do. So um, Dan, uh, along with my co-host, uh, uh, Tony, today, we're going to sort of find out how you could actually make these moves. But, uh, but before we dive into the, that, I'll, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became editor of International Living. Sure, sure, sure. I am I'm an editor at International Living. We, I think we have nothing but editors at oh, okay. International Living, editors <laughs> and correspondents, but they call me a senior editor because my wife, Susan Haskins, and I have been at it for so long. I think we started with International Living in 2001. And before that, we were just journalists, newspaper guys, marketing people, business to business writers, stuff like that. And Susan said, you know, we're living in Omaha, Nebraska, and there are places on the planet to live where the weather won't kill you in January and February. <laughs> and I said, really? There are warm places, places where it doesn't snow, or I don't have to put on tire chains and stuff like that? She said, yes. So we started exploring those. We pitched International Living for a position. And they, in 2001, they said, how would you like to be a correspondent in Ecuador, Quito, Ecuador? So we did pretty much what Tony did. We, we sold the farm and packed up and said, you know, if we don't do this now, we'll never know how it might have turned out. And we've been doing that for 20 years now. Um, lived in seven different communities in four different countries throughout Central and South America and Mexico and have just loved every minute of it. Great, great. All right. Well, Dan, uh, why don't you dive in with sort of like, I, I'm sure that whenever you talk to somebody, uh, and, and I believe now you you happen to be stateside, you're uh, with due to COVID. So right. I imagine when you go to a barbecue or, or what have you, that people are just like, okay, well, how do I do that? Like, what what is what are your words of wisdom to folks that might be interested in taking the next step like Tony did. And Tony, feel free to jump in as he starts sharing this with some of your own personal experiences. 
Yeah, well, Tony's the proof of the pudding, you know, all you really need to do is start doing your research. If you decide that living abroad might be something that you want to do, start looking around. And of, of course, internationalliving.com is always there for you. It's a deep, wide website with just tons of resources. My best piece of advice is just to profile yourself really carefully. Find out what you really actually want. Because I think, as Tony will be able to tell you, there's a difference between vacationing somewhere and actually living somewhere. You, it's important that you're on the ground long enough to find out what it's like if you actually have to get your mail or get your internet hooked up or you know, deal with the post office, deal with the utility companies, things like that. But once you do that, once you make your cut and once you start exploring those places, it really just kind of falls into place. It sounds like a daunting task, but there's a checklist of things that you need to, you need to get your ducks in a row once you do that i mean susan and i have done it seven times now <laughs> you, um, you do it once and it gets easier and easier and well, easier every time um you know but uh, tony I, i'm I, this is a great opportunity to to share something that tony just shared with me but dan you i, I believe you shared with me that international living was first founded because of affordability issues, the affordability for US retirees right. to live in the States. And they discovered these lower cost um, living arrangements abroad. Um, and uh, um, it, it, I'd love you to elaborate on that. And then Tony, uh, <laughs> why don't you share with folks the living arrangements that you have there and where you are in Spain and how much it costs, because it kind of blew my mind looking at how beautiful that kitchen is. It blew your mind. When, Tony's, I love this kitchen. And, and Tony's going to be the poster child for this, but you know, if, what we tell people <laughs> is if tomorrow you could move to someplace where you could cut your cost of living in half and not give up anything in the way of services, amenities, healthcare, infrastructure, things like that, would you do it? And most people say, well, sure I would. And then you say, what if it was outside the United States? And that's just changing your frame of reference. That's just thinking a little outside the box. But once you do that, the world just opens up. There are so many beautiful, yeah. friendly, culturally interesting places where you can go and live for less than you're doing in the United States that I don't know why more people don't do it, but Tony's, Tony did it. She can, she yeah, can so tell Tony, you Well, anybody who wants to come to Alicante, I promise to show you around. <laughs> I, I love Alicante. I'm in Alicante Centro, 750 meters to the beach. It's a blue flag beach. I'm in an amazing three bedroom, three bath apartment, top floor terrace. We pay 950 euros, which is about $1,100 a month for in rent. And this is what really got me, Steve. I was paying, for the two of us, we were paying about $1,800 a month before I was on Medicare, about $1,800 a month just in health insurance with a $7,500 deductible. Yeah. Spain is the seventh best healthcare in the world. And for the two of us, they don't have co-pays or deductibles. I was just at the doctor today. For the two of us, for the year was $3,300. Wow. Um, I know. 
So, so well, my question there when you started talking about healthcare is, well, have you had to use the healthcare? But you've obviously you've been to the doctors. Uh, I know. And, I was afraid to go because my foot hurt, and I'm like, oh, really? Can you seriously do anything about my foot hurting? And my husband said, we paid for the insurance. Go. So I went. And the doctor was really sweet. I really liked him. Helped me with my Spanish. But he said, you know what? I think we can fix this. Gave me a piece of paper to go get tomorrow. I, so I was at the doctor today. Tomorrow I get my MRI to find out if it's a cyst that he can take care of. So the healthcare is outstanding here, as far as I can tell so far. You know, that's it. That's I've had a, friends who've had knee replacements here and they love it. It's kind of a two edged sword because a lot of people move out of the United States because frankly, that they've been priced out of the healthcare system in the United States. It's, it, it's so complicated and, and oh, yeah. so unmanageable. But on the other hand, they move to a, another country and they're afraid to interface with the healthcare system there because they're not sure if they find an English speaking doctor. They're not sure if the, somebody's going to shake voodoo dolls over them or stick pins in, in them <laughs> or something like that. Most of the world, in my experience, and my wife's not experience, I think Tony will back this up. Most of the world has healthcare as good or better than the United States, especially in the major oh, yeah. metropolitan areas. And it costs significantly less. It's just a matter of getting used to it. It's delivered a little differently. The bureaucracy is a little different. These are all things that you can easily get used to. But um, most people like Tony, when they finally interface with a public healthcare system or even a private healthcare system in, in Europe or in Latin America, are just astounded at what they get for the price. It's oh, yeah. it's really an eye opener. Well, we're the private because yeah. we are the that's what the private healthcare system cost me thirty three hundred dollars mm -hmm. a year for the two of mm -hmm. us. So yeah, we are the private healthcare system. So now, um, it's excellent so far. Yeah, and and Dan, I I received an international living email yesterday that I think one of your other editors wrote a book on Medicare overseas. Now, Tony, are, are you still uh, enrolled in Medicare in the U.S., or are you totally detached from that system? Just in case, although I have no plans to return, but just in case, the parts that I have to keep are like the A and the B. I don't remember, but I'm, I, all the Medigap and all the extra stuff, I don't pay anymore. But the okay. quarterly, whatever, the bare bones that you're supposed to pay, that I'm still paying. And I'll, I'll do that until it's really clear that I'm not going back. And Ron Elledge, the guy that you're talking about, Steve, the guy that wrote the book, How to Use Medicare for Expats, it's on the International Living website in the bookstore. It's, it's easily available. And I'm going to be doing an interview with him in the next couple of days, answering some of the questions that, that expats have. But yeah, it's a, it's a decision that every expat has to make for themselves. But for my money, keeping A and B, and especially B, which is the part that you have to pay for, the, 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 the Part B Medi Medicare uh, uh, plan is just a cost-effective thing because you never know if you're going to move back or yeah. not. Like, like, uh, like Tony says, Things change, and this is not. They call us terceridad. They call us the third agers in Latin America. But now healthcare is so good around the world, and people live so long that this might not be the last act. We might have another life stage or two or three to go through, 
and Medicare might be a part of that in the United States. So giving it up just doesn't make sense from Susan and I's point of view. It differs for everybody though. Great, great. Okay, well, the, uh, the questions and comments are coming in. Uh, and let's see, uh, first off, so uh, Tony, you still have a fan club here. Sonia Gao says <laughs> hi. Um, Sonia, Wendy hi. Patcher says, why did you choose to move to Spain? And um, did you evaluate any other places to live? Uh, I did want to be on the Mediterranean. That's just, I've always loved the Mediterranean. My family's from here. Um, and my family's Italian, but Italy is just too, it, it, it's just too much for me. It's too complicated. I have too much family there. So, but Spain is easy. Spain's got excellent healthcare, excellent infrastructure. They say the bureaucracy is bad, but it's been, it's not been bad for us. So um, between the infrastructure, the food, the climate, the cost of living and um, the healthcare, Spain was just a huge win. And, and uh, Dan, I mean, now you're an editor of International Living, but you're, you sort of went through Tony's experience uh, many years ago. What made you choose the locations, the location that you chose? And then you've mentioned you've done this seven times. How do you sort of make those decisions on where to go? A lot of our job decisions were, were our move decisions were job related because these are places that international living wanted to cover and we wanted to go there and explore them. Uh, but our big criterion was never having to shovel snow again in my life. <laughs> and, and here I am in Nebraska in, you know, November's coming up. So figure that out. But um, we just wanted warm weather. We wanted interesting culture. We wanted lower cost of living. And we started writing about places in Latin America as our beat, but you know, Europe would be just as interesting a beat, I think, where all of that is possible. And we just moved from one place to the other. We're serial relocators. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, uh, both of you are in uh, you know, Spanish-speaking countries. How do you speak Spanish? And if, if not, how is it for somebody who um, maybe doesn't speak the language in, in that country? Tony, you, you're dealing with it on the ground. How did you do it? I am. I am. I'm learning Spanish slowly, slowly, slowly. And this is another reason I chose Spain, uh, because Spain is, uh, Span Spanish is a very widely spoken language. And the Spanish people are so patient with me. I just explain to them that I'm learning and they help me. I, the minute we hit the ground, I enrolled in Spanish language school. So I'm, I study Spanish every single day. I don't speak it yet, but I've, I've met many expats here that don't speak Spanish, have no intention of learning Spanish and they get along fine, but I really wanna be part of the community. So I'm working on my Spanish. How about you, Dan? Well, we quickly became functional because we, we moved to Quito, Ecuador in 2001. We were on the ground and we quickly had to find out um, how to order off a menu, how to tell a taxi driver to get us where we wanted to go, how to tell a bank clerk what we wanted to get done. And becoming functional is a pretty quick and easy process. I mean, if you, you're immersed in it, you have to do it. 
It's just something that happens. Neither of us are fluent. And I don't feel bad about that <clears throat> because uh, functionality is, uh, can get you so far in a, in a Latin speaking country, in a Spanish speaking country. And as, uh, as Tony says, everybody wants to try out their English on you. So between your Frankenstein Spanish and their Frankenstein English, there's no problem communicating. There, there really isn't. People are much more afraid of it than they should be. But getting functional happens really, really quickly. If you have the time and you have the intention to get fluent, then you can say things like, well, yesterday, if I would have been in the mood to do the thing that I want to do tomorrow, I would prospect that I would, and you know, mix up tenses and all that. I can't do that. I go, that want me to eat. Go now, how much? <laughs> and it works. It all works. Oh, that's great. Um, Tony, you, you mentioned the expat community. Um, did you find it hard to make friends and uh, make connections with either the locals or finding sort of a community where you feel like you fit in. And, and Dan, I'd be curious about your experience too. Uh, I'm still working on that. The first thing we did, the first thing we did was find the Lindy Hop dance community and they're all Spanish. So um, luckily we already knew how to Lindy Hop because we're learning Spanish. So that's helping me make Spanish friends. And they invited us to a party, so I had a Halloween party to go to. And um, Facebook groups, there are expats Alicante, expats in Spain, expat, there are all these, and I've got a meetup for hiking. So I think that if you're the kind of person that, that I think you really need the kind of, to be the kind of person that's going to reach out and be active in including yourself in a community. And then that makes it easier for you. And Steve, you know me, I don't like just sit back. I no, walk up don't. to somebody and say, hey, I heard an English accent. <laughs> and, uh, and both uh, Tony and her husband are uh, big in the swing dancing community in Northern Virginia. I tried the lessons. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it's not as easy as, uh, as it looks. But, the, uh, but that's great that you're able to find a community that enjoys an activity that you've enjoyed for so long. Dan, how, how do others find it in, in, and how did you find it in making connections to a community and feeling like you're a part of the community? It was, it was part of our job to go explore places where expats had expressed an interest in. So uh, I, there are places on the planet you can go where there are no North American expats. they are few and far between. We're everywhere. But the internet has changed everything. Uh, as Tony says, you can get on the internet now and get on Facebook and find a thread, find a Facebook page, find a bulletin board for every place on the planet where there are North American expats. I, I swear that if you want to connect with somebody somewhere in a specific location, the internet will let you do that. I could find somebody in Quito right now who could tell me what store to go to in La Floresta for a uh, Phillips head screw and, <laughs> and get an instant answer if they're online or at least find out by the end of the day. So the research has become incredibly easy right now. And it's the, the flip side of that is it's a great way to keep in touch with your family and friends back home. 
becoming an expat moving abroad used to be a daunting thing because you'd lose touch with people. You, you couldn't figure out how you'd get back to see them, how you'd find out about special events. We, when we lived outside the United States, we FaceTimed with our family every day. We had Skype calls with them. We exchanged emails constantly. Uh, the internet has just changed everything about the expat experience in a positive way. Great. Okay, we got a pile of questions here to get through, and there there were some really good ones. Um, uh, I, uh, Kim Jones Turner says, "Do you worry at all about terrorists? I know there are terrorists here in the U.S., but I would think there might be more to worry about overseas. Also, abductions in Mexico and crime. And I think that um, Dan, when you and I talked about sort of some of the." downsides of this is it's changes in some countries sort of political structure and, and things of that right. nature. Can you all elaborate on if you have any fears or, or things that precautions that people might need to worry about? From an international living point of view, crime is a very localized phenomenon. It's, we rate countries on our global retirement index. We do country ratings and safety is one of those ratings. But you really can't accurately gauge the safety of a country any more than you can gauge the safety of a city. I mean, uh, there are places in Omaha, Nebraska. There are places in Denver, Colorado. There are places in Kansas City I wouldn't go and I wouldn't live just because they're more dangerous than other parts of the city. International living doesn't recommend a community to go to and live in that we wouldn't go and live in ourselves because we do. I mean, the editors, the correspondents go to these places. They live in them. Every place that we have lived in, in Central and South America and Mexico, has been statistically safer than most major metropolitan areas in the United States. Um, I wouldn't live anywhere where drugs are processed uh, uh, or shipped or where drug financing takes place. It's not hard to tell where those places are. If you're not involved in the drug trade, if you're not involved in that kind of stuff, we have no worries. Terrorism is, uh, that's a subject I really don't know how to address because that seems like chaos to me. And I don't know how you prepare for chaos. Tony, did you have any thoughts about that when you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Europe's incredibly safe. Europe's the incident, you, you know this, you, you're an editor at guide for, I mean, for international living. Um, violent crime is very, very rare in Europe. It's yeah. pickpockets, it's stupid stuff. I mean, don't, you know, don't go to an outdoor cafe and put your purse on the back of your chair and just stuff like that. Crimes but of opportunity. Crime yeah. is very, very rare. Yeah. Um, great, great. Okay, so let's, let, I gotta, I, I'm getting, we're gonna get through these, this is awesome. Okay, so someone asked, how often do you travel back to the U.S.? I guess, Dan, um, you've been doing this for a while, but Tony, what are your, what are your um, intentions? Like, how often do you think you're going to come back here? I think I heard you say you're never coming back, but... Uh, I'm ready but, to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but how often, when you, when, when you make a move like this, what is the frequency of coming back to the U.S.? You know what, we really... We haven't worked out the details yet, probably about once a year. But um, as you guys know, and the rest of the people don't know, right, we didn't get here until the middle of July. And our stuff, our possessions still aren't here from Rotterdam. And um, 
And we, you know, so, and ski season's coming up and we're near the Alps. I'm certainly <laughs> not leaving the Alps. <laughs> well, it might be an excuse oh. to get some new skis and, and new gear. That, uh, that sounds good to me, you know. New skis always sound good. Yeah. Well, we, for our part in the, in the 20 years that we were abroad, we, before COVID, when, when things were normal and travel considerations were um, your normal stuff, we just came back when we had to. If there was something going on with our parents, we'd come back. If there was something going on with our granddaughter, we'd come back. Um, but living in Mexico, so the last place we live, and we're still we're still permanent residents of Mexico, registered in Merida. Merida was a two and a half hour flight. Um, oh well, that's not a know, big deal then. Yeah, mm -hmm. you go to Houston and and you get wherever you want to go. It was not hard to get back to the United States. We never felt isolated, um, so we'd do it when we had to. We got caught visiting our granddaughter here two years ago when COVID hit. So we're on the ground here until things even out and we feel good about traveling again. And in the meantime, she's turned a beautiful eight and is so engaging that it's gonna be tough to get Susan away from her. But you know, sooner or later, she's gonna go, I don't care if I go over to grandma and grandpa's today. And then- yeah. She's gonna be done with you. <laughs> yeah, when she's done with us, we'll, be, we'll plant someplace else. And, and that was a question that somebody had is, is did, you know, do you, do, you individually, both of you have children. How about and pets? Uh, like, what about ha having pets uh, overseas? Tony, did you bring pets with you? Did you bring anybody with you? I did. I did. And because it's COVID, now we don't have children. So, Frankie and Sugar are my babies. They're two dogs. And um, because of COVID, they couldn't come as baggage, as checked baggage, and they had to come as cargo. So they were almost $3,000. So it was a little painful, but again, children probably would have been more expensive. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it Dan, it sounds up. like you, it sounds like you, Dan, it sounds like you do have kids. Did you start this adventure when your kids were younger and they were traveling with you or, or have you, um, did you do this when your kids were grown? We did it when our kids were grown. And they're, they, like everybody's kids, they went, what? What are you thinking about doing? You're going where? And, but once we did it, you know, it all fell into place. And, and um, like I said, the internet has changed everything. You can keep track of people. They can call you in the evening and say, hey, are you okay? You go, of course I am. It's, it's beautiful here. And I'm having a frittata. Yeah, yeah. It's it wasn't a, a major consideration. In fact, what you'll do if you actually buy property or rent property abroad, Tony can probably attest to this. You'll look for a place where, when your kids come and visit, you can put them up. When your friends come for that visit, you've got a place for them to stay. They almost never do, but <clears throat> you you want a place for them if and when they do. That's great. Um, let's see. Uh, Cindy asks, how long can you stay in another country while maintaining U.S. citizenship? It's a common misconception. You don't lose your U.S. citizenship uh, no matter what you do. To get rid of your U.S. citizenship, you have to actively renounce it. Becoming a permanent resident or even getting a passport in another country doesn't cancel your U.S. citizenship. It gets a little complicated and legalistic and bureaucratic. But long story short, 
Susan and I have been permanent residents of several countries in the last 20 years, and never has it affected the status of our U.S. citizenship, and we just wouldn't give it up. There's, there's no reason to give up U.S. citizenship. As far as we're concerned, it's still the best passport on the planet, I think. Um, so, yeah, you, you, the only way you can lose your U.S. citizenship is if you actively renounce it, and I don't know why anybody would do that. Great. Um, and uh, Patricia Dubroff, who lived in Spain for a bit, and uh, she loves where you live, uh, um, uh, Tony, but uh, she asks, so are you dual residents, and how much does that process cost? Um, we're actually residents of Spain right now. We have our TIE, and so... Uh, so I, I'm a citizen of But, um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you oh, were buffering there. My uh, internet. So if you can repeat yeah. what you just said. Okay, I have my permanent residence card for Spain and I'm a US citizen and I have my US passport, I will maintain my US passport. It's just a matter of taxes and there's a tax agreement. So I pay my US taxes and then Spain deducts that from whatever taxes I owe in Spain. So I'm not that, double taxed. Yeah, that's another great point. If you're a US citizen, you never move away from your obligation to file your taxes. You may live in such a way that you don't owe any taxes, but you always have to file. And you're in the US, we're taxed on our worldwide income. But most places, there is, isn't a problem with double taxation because those treaties exist. Yeah. And, and, you know, Dan, when I glance at the stories in international living, you all seem to do a really good job of evaluating. The, the countries that are more open to expats and are encouraging through incentives yeah. to have um, uh, uh, retirees living there. Right. I, I know they sometimes are referred to as pensioners or what have you. Yeah. Can you share with our audience some of these incentives? And um, Tony, I'm, I'm curious in, in Spain, are, are, have you discovered special incentives for being a, um, an expat that is encouraging you to be there. Tony, did you get a pensionado visa when you moved? Uh, I have a non-lucrative visa, which okay. is a, probably what you're, they call it a non-lucrative. I'm not allowed to work. Right. I, I'm actually on my husband's visa. It's a long story, but we have a visa and we are not allowed to work. There's, a, and this raises a good point, Steve. Every country has different visa requirements. And countries like Costa Rica, Mexico, Panama, uh, there's a golden visa in Portugal, in, in many countries in Europe. They would love for well-heeled expats to retire in their countries and, and spend their social security and their, and their pensions there. Those levels vary from country to country. And now I think we, when when COVID passes, when this gets over with, you're going to see a lot of countries lowering the bar for North Americans who want to retire 
in their countries. Um, usually it, you'd have to show between 2000 and $2,500 in monthly income to get a pensionado visa from whatever source, from an annuity, from uh, social security, from a pension, from whatever. Those levels are gonna come down. I know Costa Rica is working on legislation right now to significantly lower the bar of entry for North American expats. When COVID lifts, everybody is gonna wanna see what they can do to entice people to come and spend their earnings there, their, their retirement earnings there again. So it's all, it, it's all changing even as we speak. It, it's, it changes on a week to week basis. Um, okay, a couple of interesting questions here from Andrea and Deb. Let me start with Deb's. And, and I think you, Tony, you remember Deb Marimer with uh, Buckley's for Seniors. But Deb says, oh, my husband, yes. yeah, she says, my husband is eligible for Italian citizenship. And by virtue of getting married yeah, to him before, <laughs> before 1983, I am as well. We're in the process of getting our case before the Italian courts. And I understand the process takes about three years. This gives us a lot of time to get our questions answered. And we have many. Can you address any situations you wished you'd known before moving? things you may have done differently or wished you had looked into more. More importantly, now's the best time to educate ourselves before the move. Books to read, websites, newsletters. Well, Deb, if you're not already an international living subscriber, I would endorse that. But, um, but yeah, anything that you wish that you would have done or uh, both of you? I, uh, the only thing, really, because I'm not a person that looks back and regrets. I just move on. But so many people said, don't ship, show up with a few suitcases. And I thought, oh my, I have to have, I have to keep this, I have to keep this. And my stuff has been stuck in Rotterdam for now four months and we still don't know when we're gonna get it. So I really, really, I, I so if it's possible to just sell everything and show up with suitcases, the people that say do it, yeah, they, they were right. They were right. Yeah. Um, I tried to get my Italian citizenship, but my grandfather was in an internment camp in Canada and he had to renounce his citizenship in order to get out. Oh. So the Canadian government has apologized and is now saying they will help me get my dual citizenship. That I really, I didn't want to wait. So I just decided we're coming to Spain, but an EU citizenship would be really, really convenient. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, and, and uh, uh, Dan, I want to get your sort of things that you wish that you did, but actually uh, because you brought that up, Andrea says, I have a grandfather who was Spanish. Is there an advantage to applying for Spanish citizenship if I want to live in Spain? What, it, what are the benefits of, of that citizenship in Deb and Andrea's situation. Um, oh, is that for me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like what, uh, if you have a connection in what, what's the value of establishing that citizenship? Um, tell you the truth, I don't know. Residency is as far as I would go. I'm not, I'm not in the market for citizenship in another country, but if I was, I'd probably want to be Irish <clears throat> and go to Ireland <laughs> because that's, that's the place that calls me. 
every place has different flips and twists though. I don't know, Tony, have you researched citizenship in Spain or, or you're settled on Italy eventually, right? Well, just because the Canadian government has now said they'll help me with right. that. Um, right. Is their way of apologizing. Um, <laughs> having an EU passport is just convenient if you're in Europe. And I have to admit that one of the reasons I want it is because the line at the airport for checking your passports for EU is always shorter than the non-EU people. So it's a stupid reason. That was a stupid reason. But it's like TSA. Reason, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a TSA, your go yeah. card. But the other reason is it is easier for moving around the EU if you have an EU passport. My, my Spanish residency card still makes it easier for me to get around. Yeah. And I will make the point that on the International Living website, there is an entire section on the benefits of second passports and second citizenships. And they're not just economic. There are privacy issues. There are freedom issues. There are uh, no matter why you might want to have a second passport, EU passports are a good example just for ease of logistics of getting around a place where you want to live. That's all on the International Living website. You can find it pretty easily. Great. I'm bouncing between chat and the Q&A section. We're going to get through all these folks. Um, Karen Carter brings up a good question, especially because um, uh, I, I believe, Tony, you talked about not working, okay? But Karen Carter says, if you wanted a part-time job, how challenging would it be to do that, you know, based on some of these visas that we're talking about? In Spain, very, very hard. You're, if you're non-EU, which would be another reason if you're eligible for dual citizenship and you could get an EU passport, but non-EU to get a part-time job is gonna be very challenging. Okay, yeah. Dan, is that there, pretty much? There, a lot of countries that are inviting US retirees over are not giving jobs away to North Americans. They're concerned with saving those work positions for their citizens. Um, citizenship may open up some doors to work for you, but the, the trend now is to just work online. If you have a job that you can do online, if you have a transportable career, even if you've been a dietitian all your life and you wanna do online consulting, you can do that from anywhere on the planet. And there are several European countries right now that are, are actively attracting what they call digital nomads. There are digital nomad visas that allow you to stay Croatia. for six months, a year. Yeah, Croatia is a huge one. Um, they'll allow you to stay, they'll provide certain benefits and you can ply your trade from there using their infrastructure and their resources, live in a beautiful place. And it's a, it's a whole different work situation than just retiring. I mean, it's opened up expat life for for almost everybody, including retirees in North America. If you've got a job you want to do online, you can do it from anywhere on the planet you want. Great. Um, all right, Dan, let's see. Uh, questions from Julianne and Bob. Uh, Dan, what was your favorite place that you've lived so far <laughs> and why? And what are some of the differences between these places? Um, and I think you already ad addressed the. Um, how your kids felt about this. Yeah, we have, we wouldn't have gone someplace if it didn't attract us for some reason or another. So we've loved every place that we've been. We've been in Panama City, we've been in Ajijic, Mexico, we've been in Merida, 
We've been in San Miguel de Allende. Uh, we've been in Quito, Ecuador, and Cotacachi, Ecuador. If I had to move, and we've been to many of those places several times because we kind of make the loop. Yeah, Ecuador was nice. Let's go back there for a while. It's been 20 years. We've had time to get around a little bit. Um, my big criteria now is affordability and great weather. And when we lived in Cotacachi, Ecuador, it's a little teeny leather crafting village at 8,000 feet up in the Andes in Northern Ecuador. Um, our, our bills were almost nothing, minuscule, because it's right on the equator at 8,000 feet. So the temperature is 75 during the day, 55 at night, 365 days a year. You have to watch TV to find out what season it is. If, if the World Series is on, you know what time of year it is. Otherwise, it's paradise all year round. And that's, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. But I go back to Merida in a heartbeat. I'd go back to San Miguel de Allende in a heartbeat. I, I want to live in Galway. I'd, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. I, I, I've mentioned it before. Susan and I now are just serial relocators. Once we're, once we're someplace for a year or two, we start getting itchy feet and going, where's the next best place? So long story short, we've loved them all. But that's, the one with the best weather and the lowest cost of living, that's top of my list. That's really cool. Um, Bob asks, uh, I want to rent in Mexico before deciding to buy. Does international living provide a way to advise individuals on the best way to find rentals in different cities? And, you know, I've, I've heard about some countries encouraging people, expats, to buy property. Um, I'd be curious on your, your thoughts on that. My general feeling is, if I'm going to a country, shoot, if I'm relocating to a new city in the United States, my goal would be to rent for a year and understand the culture and the neighborhoods before I buy. But I'm curious about some of these purchasing property incentives that we've heard out there and, uh, and can international living help? For my money, always rent before you buy. Uh, even if you know what neighborhood you want to live in, in a, in a lot of places, zoning laws are different than they are in the United States. You might move in next to a disco or a pig farm or a, a leather tanning factory. Um, always try before you buy, unless you're an investor. And there's an entire section on the International Living website now about real estate overseas. There are places where you may never want to live yourself, but people will pay uh, exorbitant amounts of month to, to stay in your place for a week or two. You can, you can get return on investment on foreign real estate in the right markets really easily. So you have to decide why you actually want to move. This questioner, though, obviously wants to check it out for relocating themselves. So try before you buy and get on the International Living website, get in the country pages, look up that country, look up the specific locations in that country. International Living doesn't have rental listings or anything like that, but most of those things, at least in Latin America, in, on my beat, are handled by real estate agents on the ground locally. Once you find out via the Facebook pages, talking to other expats, who the best real estate agents are, and those names will always bubble up, You'll find out if you talk to enough people who has the best reputation, those are the guys to contact about rentals because 
those rentals are in probably in their sales lists in their stable. How, how did you find your apartment, Tony? Um, it was, believe it or not, it was just not easy. Spain is, um, it's difficult. There's no like MLS like we have in the United States. Right. And I didn't realize that. And I didn't realize how, how it worked. Now we stayed in Valencia for six weeks so we could figure out where we wanted to be, but we very quickly realized Alicante was it. And, and, and it's just, you have to, you have to talk to people. You have to keep making phone calls. You have to email, you have to drive. It, it's hard. You have to really, um, and I would not, we're not considering buying until we're at least here for a year. Yeah, okay. you have it's to not, network. You really, easy. you really have to network. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of good questions here. One person says, uh, "This is Wendy, who says any special comments or advice for people who are single." And then Jane says, "We are two married women retirees. Uh, any countries that we should avoid? Um, sort of the, you, you know, I've got different cultures and the ways that." you know, a single woman or, um, or people could be viewed any, any way that advice that could help them, Dan, Dan. In, in the last 10 years, there have been more single women making this move and trying out living abroad than you can shake a stick at. I mean, uh, and I think the internet has a lot to do with that too, because you can network now with women who are living the lives of their dreams in places where you might want to go. And, as, as we probably know, we don't live as long as you guys do. Uh, sometimes the gals outlive the guys. And when you find yourself in a position to take the adventure of a lifetime and actually do what you always wanted to do, women are going out and doing it now. So again, just network and, and find out where they are. But, you know, alternative lifestyle, LGBTQ, um, uh, people of color moving abroad from North America. I can't tell you that there's a place not to go because any major metropolitan area on the planet has a community that, that you can find and probably fit into. Um, it, it, I'm not in any of those communities, but if I were, I'd start in the major metropolitan areas, look around there and then make those connections, network and find, find some place where I really wanted to go um, based on that input. Um, how about social security? Uh, Wendy asks about social security that um, you change your address. Uh, are social security checks still sent to US residents even if they're living in Spain or, or abroad? Yeah, in, in Ecuador, there were uh, a couple of national banks that would accept direct deposits of social security checks and a couple that wouldn't, depends on the bank. But um, a lot of people just maintain a U.S. address with um, a bank account attached to it, have their social security deposited in it, and access it with an ATM. ATMs are everywhere. Um, mm. I, I don't sign my name well enough for a Latin American bank to cash my checks. You have to sign it the same way every time. Oh, I can't do it. I'd be so, we, uh, Susan and I haven't had um, uh, a Latin American bank account for many years. We just use the ATMs. 
never failed, never failed us. I know, Tony, your, your, your strategy may be different. You've got ATMs there though, right? We, oh yeah. We have, we have a, um, we kept an American based account and that's mostly for the ease of my financial managers to move money in and out of that when she wants to do right. whatever she wants to do. So and credit an cards, credit bank. cards are a lot easier if they're attached to a U.S. address as well. Credit cards are easier. So we have that. And then once a month, I just transfer whatever I think I need that month into, I have an N26, an online account attached to an ATM. And it's, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal. I needed, I had to have a Spanish bank account or I couldn't have Wi-Fi. Right. So right. we did that. There are right reasons. Away. There are reasons to get bank accounts in the community that you move to. Uh, but for me, check writing was not one of them because I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I don't even, I don't have checks for any of my accounts. We yeah. just use an ATM card and a you know, credit card and cash. Yep. Um, let's see, back to a bunch of questions related to healthcare. We talked about it briefly in the beginning. Tony still has Medicare. Um, loves the price and the, the cost of healthcare. She's been to the doctor and is, is having a great experience using private healthcare. But uh, Debbie says, what about people with pre-existing conditions? Will they be eligible to get insurance like yours there in, um, in, in Spain or in Mexico? Uh, in Spain, yes, they're probably gonna pay more. But it's so cheap, and I'm not, I'm not sure it's that huge a difference. And it depends on what the pre-existing condition is, I have heard. So I, this is just anecdotal on my part from just you know, being in the community. But with the insurance that we have, I know that if we did have a pre-existing condition, it would have been a higher cost. Okay, but still yeah. your, your cost, what did you say? Three thousand dollars a year for your you were almost paying for the year, no deductible, no copay. Yeah, and you were almost paying. You know, you're paying over half that a month uh, in the U.S. So, uh, um, let's see. Um, and okay, so that that also addresses some of the questions that Kent Joan asked um, and Tammy Miller and Jennifer Brown. Uh, what is your, uh, oh, well, yeah, um, Dan, can you share with us, since you've been doing this for 20 years, have you had to use the emergency room or have something more than just routine health care in, in your living abroad? I was born with loose connective tissue in my shoulders. I've torn both rotator cuffs and I've had them both fixed abroad. I got my right one done in Quito, Ecuador, and got my left one done in Merida, Mexico. Um, what a lot of people don't realize in the, in the United States is that the rest of the world has two and possibly three tier healthcare systems. There is probably a national healthcare system that everybody belongs to or is based on social security. There's a, there's a side-by-side -side private healthcare system where you can buy insurance just like you do in the U.S. from a private company. And there's out-of-pocket. Uh, if, if it's a place that's affordable enough, some people don't get insurance at all. They just pay for their medical care out of pocket if it's cheap enough. Cobbling that together depends on what your financial situation is and what your needs are. If you have, if you're concerned with emergency situations like cancer or kidney issues or something like that, 
you, a lot of expats will join the National Health Service, but then get a cheap private policy for their wellness, for their dental checkups, for their, you know, for their for their maintenance issues, and that can be a really cost-effective way to do things. I have never been a member of the National Health Service in any of the countries we've lived in because we move too much. We've had international private healthcare plans. We've gotten national private healthcare plans in Mexico, in, in Ecuador. There's always something that you can cobble together. Those private healthcare plans almost always have exclusions for pre-existing conditions because that's what private insurance is like. They don't, they don't wanna take on the risk and they don't have to. More and more national healthcare systems like Ecuador, and I think Mexico is gonna follow this as well, Costa Rica might as well, have just gotten away with, done away with pre-existing conditions. That's just called your medical history. Doesn't make any difference. If you join the National Health Service in some of these selected countries, doesn't make any difference if you've got a bad heart or a history of cancer or um, what your pre-existing condition is, you're covered. That coverage varies with how well it's funded in any particular country. The National Healthcare Service institutions are usually a little less funded than the private hospitals and the, for the private healthcare institutions for obvious reasons. So, you know, do your cost benefit analysis. Do you want public healthcare service that you may have to wait a little while for that is a little less well-funded in the country, but covers everything? Or do you want to spend a little more for a private health insurance, uh, a little better facilities, and you may not have your bad heart or your, your pre-existing cancer covered? It's up, up to everybody's individual taste. Well, this is... Uh... That this is really interesting. And as Patricia Dubroff says, great discussion. I'm counting down to retirement. I think you've inspired a lot of us to, to think a little differently. And um, this has been really cool. This hour has gone by super fast. I, I really wow, want to yeah. thank <laughs> both of you. I want to thank our audience for the awesome questions. Uh, they it didn't disappoint once again. And um, Make sure that you go to International Living. I tried to drop in the, the links that Dan referenced into chat there. And um, uh, Tony, it's been great to see you. This and has been so much fun. Thank you for so, thinking of me. So exciting. Love so it. Uh, thank you all. And uh, we will be talking to you soon. Cool. Bye. Tony, good to meet you. I'm coming to nice see to you. Thank you. <laughs> great.